girl, you cray cray. Alrighty. So, um, title of this podcast or to be named later is last minute tax savings and a good cause. And so, um, I have Miss Stephanie Boyer, the uh, CEO of Restart, um, an organization here in Kansas City, uh, on with me today, this evening, I guess. Uh, and uh, and so, <clears throat> Stephanie, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then I'll kind of weave that in to the last minute tax savings, and then we'll uh, dive a little deeper um, into. Uh, your organization and what you do. Um, and so, uh, yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for having me this evening. It's great to be here and be able to share with you. Uh, so I am Stephanie Boyer, the CEO at Restart. Um, I have been there three years. Um, so I've had over a 20 year uh, career so far uh, in nonprofit or government work um, in some realm of social service um, aspect, programming, things like that. So, um, yeah, so I'm excited to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. So we know each other uh, because you and my wife are involved in uh, Centurions. Um, and I've gotten to ride the coattails of that. So, um, yes. <laughs> and, and you're a, a legitimate CEO, I'm a faux CEO. So, um, <laughs> when I, when I started my firm, um, back in 2018, when I was doing up the papers, uh, to, uh, file my LLC, um, I didn't know what to call myself. And so I just said, well, I'm going to do everything. So I might as well call myself the CEO. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I guess president or managing partner, I don't I guess managing partner probably wouldn't work because I don't have a partner. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So but you're a legitimate CEO. So um, I think our first on this episode, <laughs> but on, on this show. Um, but uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about Centurions um, since we're talking about it. Yeah, so um, the Centurions program is part of the Kansas City Chamber, um, and it is a, a two-year leadership program um, where we get to kind of take a deep dive and learn about lots of different um, back scenes of Kansas City, um, from things around um, transportation, um, small business, um, infrastructure, uh, education, um, housing and homelessness this last year. Uh, so it's a really amazing experience. Um, so it's a two-year-long commitment. We have a, a all-day task force each month on our, one of those topics where we really kind of take a deep dive uh, into what's going on in Kansas City. And so um, the whole premise of the um, program is um, for leaders in Kansas City and emerging leaders in Kansas City, and it's um, learn, serve, and lead. Um, so we do a lot of volunteering as well. So it's a really great opportunity to learn even more about a lot of different organizations that are doing amazing work um, throughout the city. Awesome. Yeah, it's uh, I know my wife, it's uh, been a great experience for her and she's met a lot of great people. So including yourself, she said to tell, tell you hi. Um, yes. she, she loves you. So she was so happy to hear um, that we're I thought be, maybe uh, she pop- might make an appearance. I, I told her, I said, feel free to pop in, you know, so um, she's shy. 
No. Uh, <laughs> well, um, if you've ever listened to the podcast, uh, you know, I can draw these things out. So, um, but we're going to do the expedited version here tonight um, <laughs> for, uh, for timeliness. Um, but uh, before we dive into what we wanted to talk about, I always like to do my 15 minutes of fluff. Um, started out as a lightning round, I think for one episode, and then I decided it was not fast. Um, and so it was five minutes of fluff and it blew five minutes out of the water. So, uh, adapted to 15 minutes of fluff. Uh, we'll, we'll go for the five minutes of fluff. All right. So, uh, I've got five questions here for you. Um, these are kind of, uh, um, A or B options. So normally it's open-ended question. Um, but, uh, you ready to do this? Yep. Okay. First one. Pizza Hut or Papa John's? Oh, Papa John's. Ah, yes. So uh, <laughs> I'm a Papa John's. We're house divided. I'm Papa John's. Audrey is Ooh. Pizza Hut. I'm just Ooh. like, I don't know what you see in that. But uh, so, yeah. Was... Anywho, but anytime we order pizza, it's 90% of the time Pizza Hut. So, good to know I've got somebody else on my side. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Disney World or Disneyland? Disney World. Ditto. I've never been to Disneyland, so um, have you been to either? I've been to Disney World. Yeah, I haven't been to Disneyland, but everyone that's been in all the research I did, Disney World all the way for sure. Okay, okay. I didn't do any research. I just showed up. um, (laughs) We went on a family trip. Yeah, Uh, actually three years ago. Three years ago, um, uh, Audrey's family, we went to disney world and that was actually my first time ever going to disney world so it was a an interesting uh awesome unique experience so um but uh fascinating um our youngest was one just turned one and so we stayed at the boardwalk and he actually slept in a closet (laughs) in a pack and play um but he was still waking up in the night and so uh, have you ever been to board, the boardwalk area over there? Uh-huh. So I was the like lone person. Well, I guess there were a few people up, but I was up and uh, with our son at like three or four in the morning, walking around the boardwalk, that uh, lagoon area that's got all the boardwalk connected to um, the other resorts there. Um, walking with him in the middle of the night. And it was fascinating because the crew is out cleaning the boardwalk. It's like that thing is immaculate when you wake up in the morning. Like it's brand new, you know. They've got people out there power washing the boardwalk every night in the middle of the night. So it's pretty cool. It takes a lot Um, to make that place go around. That's for sure. Yeah. (laughs) There's a whole underground city underneath there. Yeah, we're looking forward to going back sometime to uh, see Star Wars. So we've, oh, yeah. we've ventured off down that. So, okay. As you can see, why it's evolved into like 15 minutes of fluff. But <laughs> um, Apple or Android? Oh, Android. Really? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Okay. I'm an Apple person. Um, yeah. Just easier to use. Why? Why? Why Android? Oh, I think it's so much easier to use than, really? than Apple. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. 
Okay. I have the Google Pixel. I love it, uh, probably because I use like a Google Drive a lot, and it's just so intuitive to for Google in your Google Drive and pictures and everything else. And I just I love it. Okay. Okay. I get on an iPhone and I'm like, what do I do? How do I go back? What (laughs) happens? Like I keep screwing it up. (laughs) Gotcha. Well, um, I'm still rocking the iPhone SE. Wow. So I, I was, uh, I actually just got my haircut tonight just for you. Uh, no, I, it's been like almost two months since I had my haircut. So I looked like a shaggy dog. Um, but I was telling the, the hairstylist, she was asking me if I knew about this, uh, feature. It's like the pop things that go on the back of your phone. But it was, it's like a QR code for business cards. Mm. I wasn't familiar with it. She was telling me about it. I said, have you seen my phone? I mean, this should tell you enough. It's, you know, <laughs> but, well, um, okay. So you'll have to teach me about Android then sometime since it's so <laughs> much easier. Are you a uh, sports fan? Yes. Okay. Do you play fantasy football? I don't. No. Okay. Okay. I guess that was, that was my question. So I do, I'm kind of addicted to it. Um, although this season has been rough high and low. Well, so in my church league, it's just the pits, um, COVID and injuries. Um, but then in my other league that I shouldn't be winning in, I'm, uh, what took second place in the regular season. So I'm in the playoffs right now. So Okay, congratulations. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Made it to the championship three times and have never won it. <laughs> so, anywho. Um, okay, last question. I ask this of everyone that comes on the show. Uh-oh. Uh, are you a baseball fan? Familiar with baseball, at least? Been to yes. a game? Yes. <laughs> what would your walk-up song be? Oh, gosh. You know, I was just thinking about this because it came up in something the other day. And in the weirdest times, I think I hear a song and I'm like, that's it. That's the song. And do you think I can remember at any time what that song was? <laughs> uh, My changes by the episode, so okay. it doesn't have to be permanent. Yeah. Oh man, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I can't even think of a. I can't even think of one right now. What what genre? Oh, definitely, probably a rock song. Like oh, okay, yeah. Okay, we'll go with that. Um, mine today, and. Everybody's going to think I'm into bro country um, because on the last episode that I just posted on estate planning, um, I I was joking around and I said, I'm into the fancy like, Um, which when we're at Neon Wild, uh, I'm pretty sure. So people were on the dance floor dancing to that. The only reason I wasn't out there is because I don't know how to do the dance. I'm not I'm not good at the the whole organized dancing a more of kind of a free flow sort of person so uh two drink minimum by the way 
I'm like the Tin Man. I need some oil. But uh, um, so mine right now is Beers on Me by Dirk Bentley. <laughs> and so, like I said, I'm not into bro country, but uh, I got pulled into this song by uh, we've got a Samsung TV. And it when you start it up, it plays like the free Samsung uh, channels and it pulls up Vivo and it's country music. And so I, when I was up one morning, I caught this song and, uh, I was like, nah. and I had heard it a couple times since then. Um, and the music video, I like the music video because so Dirk's Bentley and there's two other guys that, uh, are featured in it. They, um, they get a beer truck and and they uh, go around handing out beer that's their label um and uh they're dressed up as beer distributors and so um i I think it's cool and it it, it's um got this idea that i want to do a hilltop um client family friends fans if i if i have any anybody listening to the show (laughs) uh appreciation event um, my buddies, two of my fraternity brothers, um, have a, uh, a brewery down in the crossroads called Rochester, uh, Rochester brewing and roasting. Um, we've talked about them multiple times on the podcast now. Um, but, uh, I, I want to do an event down there and have them do up a hilltop, um, flavored brew and then, um, Everybody could drink off of the Hilltop beer and the beer's on me. Um, nice. So, and now Audrey's going to kill me for throwing that out there. But uh, <laughs> yeah, because now it's got to happen, right? Exactly. So, um, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'll be waiting for my invite. <laughs> exactly. You, you're invited and anybody else listening to this is invited. So we'll, we'll I'm see. A, I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs> so, I've even got an idea. This all happened like this past week even got an idea for the invitations that I'm going to send out for us. So I don't know. We'll see. Okay. um, This is really coming together. (laughs) We'll see what happens. So a few months down the road, but so um, that is our 15 minutes fluff. I think we might've gotten it in under 15 minutes. So, um, but uh, so getting into our topic, you're in tax savings opportunities. Um, I guess we're talking about opportunity tonight and a good cause. And so kind of what I get with uh, clients all the time, everybody asks me, how can I save on my taxes? Everybody's looking to save on taxes at your end. Um, And so, you know, general ways to do that, contribute to your 401k, the pre-tax option. Although I'm a big Roth fan. if you uh, if you're on a qualified high deductible health plan, you can contribute to your HSA, um, lower your taxes, invest that money as well. If your kids are in daycare, dependent care FSA, those sorts of things. Tax lost harvest. If you have a taxable investment account, um, all those sorts of things. But um, there's no secret tax loopholes that we can really um, pull, right? And, So kind of feeding into this, the Tax Cuts Jobs Act of 2017 was passed in December of 2017, and that was kind of the first major tax overhaul in decades. And so what it did was virtually lowered taxes for 
almost everyone. And one of the things with this is that it uh, almost doubled the standard deduction. And so uh, before the Tax Cuts Jobs Act, roughly 70% of individuals were taking the standard deduction, right? After that was passed, they estimated that 90% or more of folks would take the standard deduction uh, because it nearly doubled the standard deduction. And so you didn't have to itemize everything. Um, it put a cap on your SALT tax, your state and local tax. It put a cap at $10,000. Um, so those that live in high tax states that would normally um, do the itemized deduction were limited at 10000 now. Um but uh, uh, it also impacted charitable giving. Um, opportunities to deduct your charitable contributions um, decreased because there was a higher threshold to meet to exceed the standard deduction. Um, and so last year, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, in March of 2020, they passed the CARES Act. Um, it was a coronavirus stimulus package. And in that, they included a provision where um, even if you took the standard deduction, you could deduct $300 in charitable contributions. Had to be in cash, couldn't go to a donor advised fund, if I'm remembering all this correctly. Um, and so it was uh, an unique circumstance where you could benefit from your charitable giving. Um, not saying that you should uh, solely base your charitable giving off of uh, whether you get the tax deduction or not, but um, you know, it's definitely a little bit of an incentive um, uh, if somebody's on the fence. So, um, and then the taxpayer uh, certainty, certainty and disaster tax relief act of 2020 um, that was enacted last December essentially extended this for another year, um, but they actually increased it where married filing jointly, you could now deduct up to $600 and still take the standard deduction um, for 2021. And so that's kind of what gets us here today is um, kind of some last minute opportunities looking to lower your tax bill and also benefit some good causes. Um, and so that's kind of why I wanted to bring you on today and uh, talk about your organization. Um, you've told us a little bit about yourself already. So yeah, Restart. Tell us about Restart. Um, you've been there since 2018, right? I came on yeah. January 3rd, 2019. So 2019. Okay. Yep. Okay. So I guess my first question for you is how have you seen... Um, the impact of the tax change and uh, charitable contributions giving to your organization? Has it affected it? Yeah, I think we've definitely seen it, uh, you know, a decrease in overall individual donations. Um, you know, in 2020, throughout the pandemic, we did see a, an increase, um, I think largely because um, of everything going on. There was a lot of conversations happening around homelessness, you know, as everyone was uh, quarantining at home, people began to wonder, well, where do people, where do you go when you don't have a home, you know, uh, in, a, in a global pandemic? So um, it, it brought about a lot more awareness and we saw a lot more, a, a large increase in, uh, especially online kind of giving through social media and things like that um, throughout 2020. 
Um, we've kind of seen that level off a little bit over the course of 2021. I, I was just curious. Um, I, I know that was an uh, area of concern um, that uh, uh, nonprofits, charitable organizations would be impacted by it, by the tax, the tax cuts jobs act um, because of that. And so just, just curious how that impacted your organization. Um, but tell me about um, what you do there at restart and, um, and how'd you, how'd you, how'd you get to restart? Yeah. Uh, a little bit more in about your history. Okay. Um, Where are you from so, originally actually? Do what? Where are you from originally? Uh, I grew up in Salisbury, Missouri, which is a couple hours from here. Okay. okay. Yeah. Not Salisbury, Maryland. No. There's Salisbury, Maryland. That would be way Salisbury cooler. State. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. But yeah, tell us tell us a little bit about your uh, career track life story. A little more, a little more detail. Yeah, sure. Um, so I went to, um, undergrad at Northwest Missouri state in Maryville, go Bearcats. Um, so there's gotta surely be some Bearcat, uh, fans out there. Um, so, uh, when I finished up there, I, I did move back home for about a year or two. And then I realized I, there wasn't a lot going on there and I had a lot more things I wanted to do. So I moved to Kansas city, um, uh, was a case manager at a community mental health center. Uh, for a number of years, um, found myself um, in behavioral health work uh, as soon as I graduated from college. So it's always been sort of a passion of mine. Um, and a couple years into it here in Kansas City, I was decided to go back to school and get my master's degree. So I went to UMKC. So go Ruse. So surely there's some fans there as well. Um, so right here. <laughs> So I got my master's degree, um, and uh, my my last year there, um, I did an internship um, at the city jail. Actually, uh, I was doing some mental health work there um, and providing some groups and counseling to folks there, and uh, I fell in love with um, all the people that I met there. Um, and uh, it was sort of a social worker's dream, if you will. Um, because it was within such a system that needed so much work and there were, you could just see so many people kind of falling through these little cracks in that system and they just weren't able to like get out and stay out. Um, and it, a lot of it is just life circumstances, um, not necessarily just about bad choices. And so it really opened my eyes to things. And, um, so I, I wanted to stay there and, and work, um, but there wasn't a job, so uh, I decided to write a grant and make myself a job. Um, so I did. <laughs> nice. Nice. So I had never written a grant, but, you know, I wrote a lot of papers in college. And so I tell people, if you can make it through college and a master's degree and write a lot of papers, you can write a grant. You just follow the instructions and write what they say. So um, so that's really uh, was um, kind of set my career on a different path. And, um, so it was very exciting. So I ended up, um, getting myself a job there and I ended up working with, for the city of Kansas city, um, in the municipal court system and jail, um, for about 10 years. So I worked my way up to the deputy court administrator at the Kansas city municipal court. So I oversaw, ended up overseeing all of the different treatment courts from a drug court, a veterans treatment court, a mental health court, truancy court, domestic violence court, 
and kind of overseeing the um, recreating the probation department to really kind of be more of a um, treatment focused, rehabilitative, really helping folks just um, kind of figure out how to get life back on track um, and get the resources around them that they needed. So through that work, um, I was able to work on a task force in Kansas City um, to bring uh, the very first behavioral health crisis center to Kansas City. And um, so I was on that task force for a number of years and it was a very exciting project and I fell in love with it. So I decided to go over and uh, open that. So I did that. I went to work for Rediscover um, Behavioral Health and opened the crisis center where uh, it opened a door for law enforcement, um, police and fire and ambulance to be able to divert people that were having a behavioral health crisis. So mental health or substance use um, out of the criminal justice system and also out of the emergency room and into a door where they could actually um, be seen by a provider that day, get connected to a case manager that day, um, have access to medications if they needed within 24 hours, um, and then have someone help to work on a housing goal and plan for them. So very cool. Yeah. Then uh, came a long restart. So <laughs> that's fascinating. You created yeah. your own job. Yeah. <laughs> You're a go getter. I talk to social work students about it all the time that are getting ready to graduate. You know, I tell them if you you find something that you're passionate about, you see like a need in this community, just because a job doesn't exist for it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be one. Right. And so, you know, there are a lot of amazing grant opportunities, even locally here in Kansas City and a lot of really amazing funders that um, love to take on new projects like that. So create it. Go for it. That's awesome. Um, where, where does the passion come from? Yeah, I, I think, you know, my mom says that ever since I was a little girl, I always just cared a lot about other people, um, and was always kind of a helper and a little mother hen to my little sister, I guess. So I think just some of it's just, uh, innate. Um, and then, you know, I think just as I've gone through different circumstances in my own family and then in different career tracks, you know, when you just listen to people and you listen to their stories, you just begin to see things in a, in a different way. I think, you know, I mean, I can say even I grew up in a small town, people there were pretty judgmental. Uh, and you know, it was like, well, they, you know, the, the thought process was everybody needs to just pull themselves up by their bootstraps kind of thinking. Right. And so as I began to like, listen to more people's stories and, um, you know, you just really do see that it's not always about choices that sometimes it's about a lot of different life circumstances. And sometimes it's about what you're born into, um, what privilege you have, um, and you know, what opportunities really are out there for you. And sometimes just crappy life circumstances happen to people, um, And we certainly see that, um, you know, with people that we see at Restart. I mean, people are experiencing homelessness for a whole lot of different reasons. Um, You know, and a lot of sometimes it's, you know, a major health crisis has happened. It's not uncommon. We might be having, we might have someone that's undergoing chemotherapy treatment, living in a shelter, um, you know, because they've lost their home, Um, divorce, death in a family, um, fires, you know, um, there are lots of different reasons why folks end up there. So 
you know, you just, um, in, in hearing those stories though, you see the resilience that so many people have and it's just pretty powerful and it makes you want to like be a part of trying to help them get things back on track. Yeah. Yeah. I think of, uh, I think of life as a marathon, right? And there's no throwing in the towel. There's no, there's no giving up, you know? Um, and so I, I like the name restart. It's, it's never too late to, um, get started, you know, change. Um, so, so before we kind of dive into restart, tell me about kind of the current state of homelessness in Kansas city and, and the country. Yeah. So, um, over the course, you know, of the pandemic in particular, we've definitely seen an increase in people experiencing homelessness. Um, so, um, even though there's been a tremendous amount of rental assistance and other things kind of pouring into the community, um, there were challenges in getting that money distributed in time before a lot of people got evicted. People are still getting evicted today. Um, you know, and so, and there were a lot of people that were kind of just barely making it right. Living on the edge, um, like just paycheck to paycheck, you know, and having to decide month to month, like if they pay half the rent or, you know, half the utilities or, you know, how they're going to make it through the month, if they're going to put food on the table. Um, and I think, you know, the pandemic just, it really pushed a lot of those people kind of over the edge. Um, typically, um, when we do a, a point in time count, which is a street homeless count that we do every year in January, there's usually eight, 1,700 to 2,000 people um, on the street at any one given time um, experiencing homelessness in Kansas City. Um, and we're estimating right now that's actually closer to 3,000 people. So okay. um, we'll do a count again in January. Um, but we... We have seen the calls for shelter increase five times what they were pre-pandemic, particularly for families. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty um, it's pretty eye-opening. Uh, there's a lot more need than there are shelter beds or you know housing opportunities for people. Um, affordable housing is the number one issue that we see people. Um, experiencing that are both at risk of experiencing homelessness and that are currently experiencing it. Um, we're, we've been administering a lot of rental assistance and many of those households, you know, they have income, um, but they just are living in a place that they really can't afford. Um, so, you know, if you're spending more than 30% of your income on your housing, you're at, you're at risk. Um, you're cost burdened in your housing and it, you know, puts you at risk if, one of those life circumstances happens. Um, so, um, and we see that with people trying to exit shelter. You know, we have people that are, most people, a lot of people are working when they are in shelter with us, but, um, you know, they, they're struggling to be able to find a place um, that they can afford. Um, there are a lot of just low income households. Um, and, and I kind of hoped that, you know, when uh, the start of the pandemic, when it was, um, you know, there was a lot of focus on the frontline workers, right? Like um, many of those people are, were making and are making minimum wage, which is just now $10.30 in Missouri. It just went over $10 this year. Um, so it's kind of crazy to think about. Um, so, um, 
Yeah, it's it's a challenge. Um, there's over 11,000 people on the Housing Authority wait list for people to access an income-based or subsidized housing. So if you have that low of an income, you know, you need some assistance to afford a fair market rate, uh, you know, rent. Um, but with 11,000 people on the wait list, you're going to be on there for a whole lot of years. What uh, um, lots of questions there. Uh, I know. <laughs> so, so you said you do do the count in January. Do you see that fluctuate over? Uh, is there a fluctuation over the year? Different seasons, you see more um, more homelessness, um, or is it, it fairly steady? Yeah, it's pretty steady. Um, some communities do do a summer count. We've talked about it, but haven't done it. We we were gonna try to do it in 2020 initially before we knew there was going to be a pandemic um, yeah. <laughs> to do a summer count. We've never done a summer count in Kansas city. Uh, we, every community is required to do one in January by HUD if you're going to receive HUD funding. Okay. So it's a number we have to do. And, and that number drives the number of HUD dollars that come into a community. So it's important that we, um, that we give it everything we've got to try to reach and count as many people as we can. So there are literally teams over a 24 hour period that are, will go out all across the community um, where we know that people are um, and try to ensure that we're counting for everyone. Okay. I, that's what I was going to say. I, I ask is how do you even do that? Um, yeah. So <laughs> I guess uh, probably no, no and we way. don't get them all, obviously. You yeah, know? yeah, but uh, yeah, but it's a it's a pretty uh, concentrated effort. Um, community agencies have been meeting for months, and so um, yeah, it'll be uh, in late January, and it seems to always be the coldest twenty four hours cold, yeah. in January. Yes. <laughs> um. I just drove by uh, downtown and I saw the, on the, I was coming up 71 going north on the east side of the highway there. Um, what's what's going on over there? Yeah, so that's a pretty large encampment that's right at the park, right outside our door. So our building is actually uh, just a block away from there. Um, so it's right outside our door. It's really hard to see, you know, every day, um, folks living in tents, um, out there. I would say at this point, there's probably close to 50 tents over there. Um, so it kind of started this summer, um, when the, ho after the hotels closed. This is a silly question, but where, where do they get the tents? People donate them. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So there are actually a number of encampments um, kind of in the north. There, there, are, there are hundreds of camps across Kansas City. There's actually over 200 camps that we have mapped uh, scattered across the entire city of Kansas City. Um, this, this year, um, there have been larger encampments like that popping up mm -hmm. more in, um, in the central part of the city um, and particularly in the northeast area. So there are a couple areas like that where there are 20 to 30 to 40, 50 um, tents in an area. So that is definitely probably one of the larger ones right there. Okay. And and so how does this fit kind of in the nationwide conversation about um, how this compares to the rest of the country? 
Um, I think did I hear recently 60% of the homeless populations in California? Probably they do definitely have a very large, um, population. People tend to migrate there obviously because of the weather. Um, you know, it's a little bit more tolerable, uh, you know, 12 months out of the year there. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, definitely across the country in every community there, um, you know, throughout the pandemic, they've continued to see increases in the number of people, you know, experiencing homelessness. So it's definitely, you know, a conversation that's happening all across the country for sure. And you kind of talked about this a little bit already, but what are the causes of homelessness? You know, how does someone become homeless? Yeah. So, um, you know, there are lots of reasons, but the number one, as I mentioned earlier, you know, is the lack of affordable housing options for people, um, particularly those people in, in a low income bracket. And those largely are people that are making minimum wage um, or just barely above minimum wage. And as well as people living on like social security disability, we have a lot of elderly mm-hmm. people and a lot of um, people with a disability that are literally living on $800 a month. So try to go rent an apartment and pay any bills for $800 a month in any community. Um, it's very difficult and challenging to do. So um, the housing wage that's actually needed in Kansas City um, is is $19 an hour to afford a two-bedroom market rate uh, rent apartment, um, you know, that's without any 40 subsidy. 40 hours a week. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. With minimum wage at 1030, you know, so basically someone making the minimum wage needs to work 80 hours a week, uh, right? They need two full-time jobs to be able to, to do that. So, um, so it's definitely the number one reason, you know, the other um, top reasons that we really do see are, are overall, you know, lack of income, low income, um, uh, low employment, you know, rates. Um, so um, just a lot of people struggling to maintain employment, right? Um, For lots of different reasons. Sometimes it comes down to um, transportation is a problem, you know, Um, and um, childcare can be a big issue, um, particularly obviously for people um, maybe working a second or third shift job. Um, Mm -hmm. We see that as a big issue all the time. Um, you know, and now that, of course, we have a gigantic labor shortage across this country, um, yeah. you know, we're getting lots of calls from businesses that are looking for people. They want to hire our people. Um, but many of them are located, you know, out in Lenexa or, um, you know, far away where there's not a bus, there's not transportation to get there. So they could make that $18, $19 an hour, um, but they don't have a way to get there. Right. So, um, so there are all those different barriers. So definitely, you know, um, domestic violence is another reason why people experience Mm. homelessness. Um, so, um, and we saw, have seen throughout the pandemic, a rise, um, in domestic violence as well, you know, with, um, just a lot of people being home, right. A lot of stressors and kids being home and lots of different things going on there. So, Um, mental health and substance use are definitely a part of it. Um, but they're really at the bottom of the reasons why people experience homelessness. Now they become a coping mechanism. They become, uh, well, mental health becomes a symptom of experiencing long-term homelessness, right? And the trauma that you go through, 
substance use, you know, becomes a way to cope with, um, particularly if you're continuing to experience street homelessness, it's rough out there. Um, it's a dangerous place. It's, you know, you're really living in this just survival mode mentality. And it's really difficult if you don't have a place to go that you can get your basic needs met every day to think about how to get from point A to point B. Yeah. Yeah. I heard um, recently that we, for the fiscal year 2021, that we surpassed 100,000 overdose deaths for the first time ever in history. Um, And I heard a large portion of that for adults, what, 18 to, I don't know, 45, that it was fentanyl um, overdoses. Um, But is that something that you're seeing? Yeah, we've definitely seen that be on the rise probably over the last five or six years. Um, And I think every year it's just getting more and more. We see that coming out of um, opiate addiction is where it starts. Um, so, um, people get hooked on opiates very easily. Um, people can get them very easily for lots of different things. And again, it's also one of those things that a lot of times it starts out from an injury, right? A legit injury. Um, and the right circumstances happen. And all of a sudden you have someone who's maybe, never shown any signs of addiction in their entire life are now addicted to opiates. And once they can't get them, then they start moving to things like heroin. Um, Then you, you just keep moving on. And then they, you know, then fentanyl there, you know, more things are getting laced with fentanyl as well. Yeah. And it only takes a tiny, tiny bit of it um, to actually kill someone um, to, to cause that overdose. So it's scary. Like it's very scary. How how small of a dose of the Finch. I was just listening to a news podcast and they were talking about this. And I th- think they've confiscated like fifteen thousand pounds or something. Basically they said whatever amount that they've confiscated, it could kill three billion people. It's like what the hell? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fentanyl's the Michael Jackson drug, right? Not propofol or I don't know. I, I had a surgery done, um, uh, minor surgery, and they put me under. And I was like, so what are you guys doing? Oh, we're giving you this drug. I'm like, what is that? Oh, the Michael Jackson drug. I'm like, I want to wake up. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so um but then circling back, you mentioned that the uh, labor shortage. Um, I know you said the minimum wage is 10. What is it now? 1030. 1030. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I saw McDonald's down the street was paying 15 an hour. I know we've got more jobs available than we do people to work them. Um, obviously, some of that has to do with um, skills for those jobs and not having um, uh, the right skilled people to fill those jobs. Um, I guess maybe is there opportunity there? Because it sounds like jobs is part of the thing. I know transportation you mentioned was a big portion of that. Uh, child care. I certainly understand the child care situation. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, so uh, w- 
we might be adding to your role there. Um, we've got one that is pushing the limits um, <laughs> and telling him Santa, if he's a bad boy, that uh, Santa is going to leave him coal or not bring him anything does not seem to be working. Um, <laughs> uh, so Audrey and I were out shopping for a new TV last night while the boys were spending the night over at their aunt's. Thank you, Becky. Um, she was, uh, uh, single parenting and wanted to have both of our boys spend the night with her two kids. She's a better person than me. Um, <laughs> her husband, uh, my brother-in-law got a new job in Iowa. And so, uh, he's there and they're going to be moving there soon. But yeah, she was single parenting last night and said, Hey, bring the boys over to spend the night. Girl, you cray cray. Um, but, but uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But we were shopping for a new TV last night because uh, our son broke our other TV uh, because he was playing video games and got mad because he was losing. I got to remind myself he's six, though. But uh, and uh, we probably shouldn't be letting him play PlayStation, to be honest. But um, dad was trying to work. <laughs> so um, but yeah, yeah. So um, well, uh, so how does restart? fit into this equation and tell me what you guys do. And, um, I guess just tell me a little bit about the organization. First of all, when, um, it was 40 years now celebrating 40 years now, um, your staff, uh, volunteers, what does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, 40 years this year, uh, restart began in 1981, um, in a church basement, um, as a single men shelter. Um, so 40 years ago, that really was kind of the only face of homelessness that you did see. Um, and unfortunately that has changed over the years. Um, so Restart's been an organization here in Kansas City for the last 40 years that's continued to um, evolve to meet the ever-changing needs of what that looks like in the community. Um, so current times, uh, we kind of do a little bit in the entire continuum um, from the prevention side. So we're doing that emergency rental assistance and working to on housing stability with people and trying to keep people from falling into the system who are on the edge. Um, and then we also do that street outreach work. Um, so we have folks that go into those encampments and um, into abandoned houses and other places where people are um, cars, you know, experiencing street homelessness. And so they're still working with folks and trying to get them housed even from the street. Um, and then, of course, we do emergency shelter. Um, so we do that for unaccompanied youth 12 to 17. So these are kids that have left home or have been removed from home for a variety of reasons. So sometimes by the children's division, sometimes they've left on their own, typically because of abuse or neglect. Um, and uh, so we also have um, family shelter. Um, so for families experiencing homelessness, um, we do some transitional living programs for um, youth 17 to 21. So we do that in um, Kansas City, Missouri, as well as Johnson County, Kansas. Um, so it's really important. We see, we've seen a growing, uh, number of kids in that age category, aging out of foster care and into homelessness. Um, which again, it's one of those systems that we, there's a lot of system work to do, uh, because a yeah. lot of the systems dump people into homelessness. So the criminal justice system, the foster care system, we have all these faucets turned on, right. And the bathtub's just overflowing. 
And um, so there's a lot of work to do in a lot of different areas to to slow that. Um, and so we can work to try to get it under control. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, permanent housing. So we, we have about 50 units of permanent supportive housing scattered around Kansas City where we're providing ongoing case management to those folks, um, typically because they have some level of disability and need just some extra assistance to live independently. Um, but our goal, you know, as everyone that we work with is to obviously help them find an exit out of homelessness and back into stable housing. So every program has case management attached to it. So they've got somebody that can come walk alongside them and help them take the steps. And, you know, it's overwhelming sometimes all the things that you have to do and, um, you know, what's required. And, and, um, you know, when you've gone through uh, something traumatic and you're in a crisis, it's hard sometimes to like focus, right? And know what to do first. So it's important that we have that case management kind of wrapped around people to kind of help be there um, and walk alongside them. Uh, and so we also uh, provide on-site mental health and substance use um, treatment and groups um, and therapy, just again, more from that crisis standpoint, really with a lot of folks. Um, some emotional regulation stuff with those kids, especially coming in, right? They're, they've gone through some stuff and they're really pissed off at the world. <laughs> um, and they're trying to figure out how what they're going to do, right? And they're kids. Um, so, yeah. um, so there's a lot of work there to do to try to help them be safe and um, try to help get keep them on the right path. We have an employment specialist, Julie. She's amazing. Um, and so she works with folks to try to get them, um, you know, placed into jobs and helps prepare them, um, helps them apply for jobs and get ready for that, access some of that training if there's a particular area of work that they're interested in, but they lack those skills. Um, you know, it's accessing that. So um, we, we're trying to partner with even more um, training opportunities. And with FEC, we're having some conversations around, especially those young adults. Um, how can we engage them right now, right? And set them on a, get them the proper skills and training needed to set them on an actual career path. So they're not just, you know, working at McDonald's, not that there's anything wrong with that, but we really want to set them up so that they can exit homelessness and that be forever, right? Um, that they have yeah. the best chance at that ongoing housing stability. So, um, yeah. yeah. You got to start somewhere. Yeah. We just don't want you to be there forever. Right. So it's a, it's a stepping stone. So nothing wrong with that. Um, how many staff do you have? So we have about 80 staff. 80, so, okay. Yeah. Okay. So we usually support... 2,500 to 2,800 people a year through all those different programs. Okay. And those are all your programs or do you partner with other organizations or is it a a blend of the two? Yeah. So those are all ours, but within all of those different ones, we do also partner with other organizations and add additional, you know, support and referrals and um, assistance and things to people. But um, that's in addition to that. Okay. Okay. Hillcrest ministries. Do you, mm-hmm. do you do any work with them? Yeah. Sometimes uh, we refer families to them, um, or okay. individuals. Um, 
you know, it's really, it's about really kind of assessing where people are at. It's kind of triaging, you know, and figuring out what's the right door, what's the right path. The, the path in looked different for everyone and the path out looks different for everyone. You know, um, some people we can exit very quickly um, and get them back into stable housing. And some people it's going to take a little bit of time and some people it's going to take a long time. So depending on what kinds of barriers and things that they have, you know, to overcome, we felt very fortunate this year. We had a, a private donor donate a pool of money that we were able to use to address barriers for people to help exit faster. And we've definitely seen that um, have just a tremendous impact for people. So sometimes it's, um, you know, it, it we just use it sometimes to pay a deposit, right? Whereas if they're working, they might need to stay in the shelter for a whole other month just to save the money to make the deposit, right? And it's like, well, we can cover the deposit today. We're talking about $500. Like this yeah. is really not that much money. Um, and we can get them out of shelter and back into housing today, right? Instead of in 30 days or 45 days. Um, so particularly when you're talking about kids, right? So we can get that stability back and they can get in back into a routine, better routine and they're accessing their education. Um, so um, that, you know, is has been extremely helpful to be able to to have some uh, discretionary funds like that, you know, to be able to um, just address some of those things. Sometimes it's even just getting a birth certificate. Um, you know, everywhere they apply for housing, uh, you have to have a birth certificate for everybody in the household. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I went to find my, I don't know where my daughter's birth certificate is or mine. <laughs> I had to go get one. Um, you know, when I needed one the other day for something, I haven't needed it for a really long time. Right. Yeah. Um, so you, you don't think about it, but, um, you know, if you've got a family of four or five and even though it's $15 for each one of them, you know, it adds up. And I mean, it's not again, uncommon, like for be able it to take a while for people to be able to save, to be able to do that. So, um, when we can take care of those little things like that and shorten that time and get them back into housing. Um, so that's, yeah some of what people's dollars can help do. So. Yeah. It's yeah. We, we've got the birth certificates, but we're trying to sell uh, an old car right now and uh, go to look for the title and it's not there. So yep. we're getting a duplicate title and we've been <laughs> waiting for two weeks now. And it's like, I'm just sitting on this car. I could have sold two weeks ago, but I didn't have to have this thinking title, but yeah. Anywho, I digress. Uh, do you guys do uh, financial coaching with them, um, budgeting, that, that sort of thing? So we do some light budgeting with folks. The case manager usually does really as they're working on that housing goal and that housing plan, right? That has to be part of the yeah. conversation because we want to do some education. Mostly in that time, we're really trying to educate people around that 30%. Like you can't get yourself into a housing situation that you're spending more than 30% of your income because the chances are you're going to be right back here eventually, right? We, we don't want that to happen. So um, working with them on really their budget and what that looks like. Um, we would like to do more around that area. What we find is the folks that are like in shelter with us, it's just, they're not in the right place, right? They're yeah. just, they're in this crisis and it's really hard. So it's like, we just need to focus on that, that just 
that overall kind of getting through the day budget stuff and like getting through the day and just figuring out how we're going to really do that. Now, some of our, like the transitional living program, that's a little bit longer. Those kids are in that program for like a year. There's more opportunity to kind of do that, um, you know, as well. So, um, we, we hope to be embarking on some affordable housing development this next year. Um, so in creating some, um, small cottage homes, um, they're not tiny homes, but they're, they're smaller square footage homes that'll be much more affordable, um, for people. And so, um, we hope to definitely have more of that financial planning, um, attached to that because we hope that that will be eventually a path forward for home ownership for more low income households. Um, you know, um, a lot of them have never thought about that. No one they ever knew ever owned a home. So it's not something anyone ever had a conversation with them about. They don't know anything about it. They don't even know it's possible, right? Um, you can't control your rent, but you can control your mortgage, (laughs) right? The rent goes up every year. Um, so, um, once that mortgage is paid off, no more payments. Yeah. So, so, well, very cool. You said you work with upwards of 2,500 individuals or families or uh, per year? Yep. Individuals? Or do you define um, It's about 2,500 or... to 2,800 people, and that includes people. Okay. families. Um, yeah. Okay. So what do you define as a successful outcome? And, and what do those numbers look like? Success rate, I guess, would you say? I know that's yeah. probably hard to kind of really define. No, but. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, there we see lots of success for people all the time. We always talk about that. It's hard to, uh, it's hard to report on it or tell it sometimes, um, you know, because every little step, like when they get that ID, when they get that birth certificate, when they get that job, when they do all those things, right? It's like that's success, success, mm-hmm. success. Um, but overall, what we're really looking at is an exit to stable housing, right? So our focus is all of those things, but our main focus is exiting you from homelessness, right? So um, so we're definitely looking for a, an exit to some stable housing. So sometimes that is a longer term transitional living program for some people, right? Um, so for instance, like you mentioned, Hillcrest, if someone exits our shelter and into Hillcrest program, we still would consider that an exit to a stable housing situation because they can be there for X amount of time, right? They're going into a program. Um, so they're not exiting to the street or they're not exiting to an unstable, um, housing situation. So, so um, close to 80% of the people that we serve ex- do exit to a stable housing situation, um, which is pretty good. So yeah. um, typically from a shelter. Above average. Hmm? It's above average. Yes. Passing grade. <laughs> yes. So no, that, that's, that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. It, t- it takes all those wraparound support services, though, to make that happen. You know, and I think that's. The other thing that makes us a little bit different on the emergency shelter side is that we provide continuous sheltering, meaning that people, when they come in, they don't have to leave every day. So we're not just an overnight shelter. Um, once they have that bed, you know, they're usually there 45 to 90 days while they're working with that case manager on things, um, but they don't have to leave every day. So um, 
which allows people a moment to breathe, right? It allows them to step out of that survival mode thinking and then begin to think about what do I need to do, right? What's my next step? How do I get out of here? How do I get a place to live again? How do I get a job? How do I do all those things? And then they're able to start taking those steps. And do you have rules um, when they come in to that situation? Yeah, we do have rules. Um, We do consider ourselves a pretty low barrier shelter and program um, for people though. Um, So, but you know, we have a curfew for instance. And so unless you're working, you know, past that time, like you're supposed to be in by that time. Um, You know, most of the other stuff is just going to be general stuff of like keeping your, you know, area clean, of course, getting along with other people, no violence, things like that. Yeah. Um, we don't allow people to use drugs or alcohol on the premises, but we do allow people to be under the influence. Um, so if you are under the influence, it doesn't mean that you can't come in as long as you're able to care for yourself and you're, um, you know, not causing a problem for other people. Um, you know, then, um, that's not going to be a barrier for getting folks in, and, and largely because we see once you kind of have that more stable housing situation, you start to see that decrease all on its own, right? Because again, like we talked about earlier, it's it becomes this coping mechanism yeah. when you're out there. And so once you don't have to worry about where you're going to stay and how you're going to stay safe and where you're going to eat, um, then you know you don't need to kind of do that as much. So we definitely see it, you know, most times decrease for people. And so you, you have, um, maybe you mentioned this before, uh, programs for helping them get clean. Yep. Um, so we have a substance use, um, coordinator on site. So she does some different groups and, um, counseling and things with them and then, um, does referrals, you know, if they need a more intense program or they do need an inpatient treatment program, uh, or a more intensive outpatient treatment, then um, she'll get them hooked up with that and they can still, you know, um, be with us during that time as well. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. So question for you, if you don't want to answer it, just say pass. But <laughs> so I've heard some places that have set up these safe zones for individuals to come do drugs in a safe environment. What... What are your thoughts on that? Is that effective? Is that a good plan? It, no, I won't pass. Um, <laughs> it, it's it's harm reduction. Um, so I, I do believe in harm reduction in a lot of different ways because we see it be effective, just like I described, right? What we do is harm reduction. We're, we're setting a boundary that you can't use it here, but we're saying you can come in. So there are different types and different levels of harm reduction for people. Um, so um, you know, the same thing like that is, um, what you see is, um, less violence happening, um, because people aren't then going to places that maybe they shouldn't be, or, um, so you provide a safer environment. So you begin to reduce things there. You reduce overdoses a lot of times, right? So we just talked about that fentanyl thing earlier. Yeah. Um, when you have a safe place for people, um, same with like needle exchanges and things like that. You're reducing, you know, HIV and AIDS um, transmissions. So um, it's it's one of those things like, uh, you know, you have to sort of outweigh the, um, 
you know, what's going on? Um, and how, how do we reduce risk? How do we reduce death? How do we reduce, um, you know, all of those different factors? So it is just really reducing whatever harm you're really trying to, to go after, you know, um, so it can provide okay. a much safer environment for folks. So I know it's, it's a controversial topic, but it, yeah. it, it does work. But, harm but harm reduction has been around a long time. But the end goal would be to get them on a plan to get them clean would be my guess. Is that? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a, we call it motivational interviewing, um, you know, from a therapeutic standpoint, it's, it's just a way that you interact with people. It's a way that you're, you're trying to get people to think about change, right? Um, you know, you can't force anyone to do anything. Um, yeah. But the way that you show up and engage with people in that conversation and, and not in a judgmental way and not in a, you know, and it's a way that we care about you. We want you to be safe. We want you to have, you know, all the things that you want in life. And so how can we help you get there? Right. Um, so um, it, it allows for an opportunity for that, um, which often opens the door for treatment, you know, um, so not always, um, but, you know, it, it definitely provides an, an environment that it's, you know, it's going to be much more likely than it is if they're just wandering around the street using, right? My uh, coach Woodford, people have heard me talk about him before. He was my high school wrestling coach. And he always, there's this quote that he, he said uh, that uh, always stuck with me. He said, Kyle, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care about them. Um, and so, you know, kind of to your point of people don't care until they know that you care about them. Yeah. So kind of to that point that, uh, you said you can't force someone to change. So how does someone, um, that's homeless get involved with your organization? Um, are you plucking them off the street and saying, <laughs> Hey, come here, or are they, um, bringing themselves to your organization saying, I need help. And, and how, how do they hear about you? How yeah. do you get to the homeless? Yeah. So actually a lot of different ways. Um, so they, they come, you know, to the door themselves, they call, um, you know, sometimes they're, they Google it or they heard about it. Um, you know, they know about us depending on kind of where they're at in their homelessness, okay. if they're new to homelessness or they've experienced it for a number of years. Um, sometimes they're working or show up at another agency store, um, for something else. Um, and so sometimes they reach out and refer people. Um, so the library is a really good example of that. The downtown library has some really amazing outreach folks that work there that are really, um, help to navigate some of that for some folks. Um, so, um, yeah, our, our street outreach workers, you know, as they're out there talking with folks, they're encouraging them to consider like coming into shelter or coming into a program. Um, so, you know, um, sometimes then they're bringing them in. Sorry. You got a puppy in the background? <laughs> yeah, I know. He's getting... What kind of dog? It's a little Yorkie. He gets jealous oh, after okay. a while when you're talking <laughs> on here for too long. He's like, um, hello, I need you to pay attention to me now. I so. know. I told you we'd keep this, this short and sweet. Yeah. Um, it, it's just, it's a fascinating conversation. Um, and, uh, very curious. 
just a couple more questions. I don't want to uh, keep you any longer. I mean, not supposed to be working this late. What are you doing? <laughs> uh, but uh, so the area that where we live, we get off the highway and there's always homeless folks there. And, you know, the, they're usually looking for money. They'll have a sign up. Um, and I guess just kind of what floats through my mind is what's going on in their mind. What's going on with them? And do they want help? What what's what's going on in their situation? Should I give them money? I feel like you know, that's maybe enabling. Um, what are they going to do with that money? It'd probably be better going to an organization like yours that can that can give them the resources and services that they need, because right across the street is the discount smoke shop. So, uh, <laughs> but I, I guess tell me tell me about those sorts of situations. I think you know someone's first inclination is. Uh, you pull up, don't look at them, lock the doors. Um, are we paranoid? What What's going on? Give us some insight into the psyche of what's going on with those folks and um, how we can help them or do they want help? I know you said, you know, you can only, you can lead a horse to water. You can't make them drink. Um, yeah. I know that was a lot I'm throwing at you. So Yeah, that's okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you kind of said it there. One of the first things I always tell people is like, when you see people like that is the first thing I would ask people to think about is to say, I wonder what happened to them. Right. Uh, and, and not let yourself sort of go to that, like immediately, like, um, you know, judgmental side of like, well, why don't they get a job? Right. Cause that's a lot, a lot of people say or think. So first of all, I think people, when you see people like that, it's the question of like, what happened to them? Because we've talked a lot about those different life circumstances that happen to people, right? And so when you go back and you start to hear their story from the very beginning, usually you're like, oh my gosh, I don't even know if I'd still be alive, right? After all these different things that they've gone through. So um, so one, I think is that, um, and I always tell people, follow your heart. Um, you know, if you feel so inclined to give the person money, give the person money. If you give people money, I would suggest not giving them a large quantity of money at a time. Um, and that's really because of the work that I've done for many years in addiction and that I have, um, had many people come into the crisis center when I worked there that almost died because someone gave them a hundred dollars and they did go buy drugs with it. And then they had enough drugs to actually almost overdose. Right. Oh, wow. So I think that's important for, I, but I'm not saying that to tell people not to give people money, right? I literally tell people, follow your heart, whatever your heart tells you to do. Um, but certainly, um, you know, one of the safest options is to give to organizations that are serving, you know, people in that situation, like Restart. Um, you know, I don't give people money, um, but I will give people food. Um, mm -hmm. and I think that's other things that people can think about is, you know, a lot of times people will create a little, little care package and like a gallon yeah. Ziploc bag of like a pair of socks and some food and some water, um, you know, something like that in the winter, hand warmers, foot warmers, things like that are, you know, very helpful to people. Um, socks. socks. Aren't those a huge thing? Mm -hmm. Socks. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, um, Follow your heart. Uh, be cautious, right? Um, because you, you don't ever know. And it's not, I'm not saying be cautious and like that everyone's going to go out and because everyone out there isn't using drugs or drinking, um, you know, like, but it does become a coping mechanism, right? Because it's pretty depressing. And then when you get pretty depressed, like 
you want something to kind of take the pain away. Right. So, um, I think we all do that in some level with something, right. Whether it's alcohol or food or whatever it is, you know? So, yeah. So are those individuals, are they aware of the services that you provide or are they not interested or, I mean, I know everyone is different, but generally speaking. Yeah. Yeah. I would say a lot of them are aware of many of the resources um, that are out there. Um, Some of them have been to those different resources over the years. Maybe they had an okay experience. Maybe they had a bad experience, you know, Sometimes it's the experience of other people there. Um, you know, sometimes when you've kind of been out there for a long time too, you get pretty isolated and wow. you struggle to be around a lot of people at one time, right? Um, and so going to a shelter where there's like hundreds of people in this one building can be really overwhelming for some people, um, particularly people maybe who do suffer with like PTSD. We see that a lot of times with veterans yeah. um, who have a lot of PTSD. Um, they absolutely would rather stay in a tent in the woods away from the entire world um, <laughs> than come into shelter, right? Um, so it's just a matter of people's circumstances and kind of where they, um, you know, where they came from. So um, we've definitely seen, though, over this last year, a lot of new people um, to the Kansas City area experiencing homelessness. So we we are, I just had a guy walk in the other day. Um, trying to seek shelter that he he didn't know where any of the shelters were in town. So, um, you know, so we've definitely seen over the last year an increase in folks that aren't aware of the services, which is why that street outreach becomes even more important. And we need more people out there, you know, kind of doing that work and helping them like, you know, know that there there are places that can help. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like spreading the word around about a kegger in high school. Right. (laughs) Not that I would know anything about that. (laughs) Word does spread pretty fast on the street. Um, So, you know, and if it's good, it's good. But if it's bad, it's bad. So (laughs) I told you I was going to ask you this when we we talked about doing this podcast uh, at the graduation event for the Centurions. Did you remind me? You're you're in the graduating class with Audrey, right? No, no. Spring? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. I got one more year. All right. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we were, we were talking about this. I told you I was going to ask you this, but how do we solve homelessness? <laughs> yes. Uh, it's going to take a while, but I think we can do it. Um, what, so, If you had to boil it down to three big key areas, three big things, what would that be? Uh, number one would be the creation of a lot more affordable housing um, for low-income households. Um, the second would be um, a living wage, uh, housing wage. So the minimum wage needs to come way up. Social Security disability needs to come way up. I mean, people can't get two more dollars every year on Social Security. It's crazy. Um, and the third thing I think is is the system work that we've kind of touched on a little bit tonight as well um, is that those systems that are dumping people into homelessness every single day. Um, there's, we've, we've got to start doing some serious work there to ensure that that stops happening. Gotcha. I think if we do those three things, I mean, we can make a pretty big impact. Are there any, um, I guess kind of, uh, 
vocational skills development opportunities to with within the job placements something in helping them develop skills um for particular jobs yeah i that's very helpful i mean um you know we are there seen... programs in place for that sort of thing or yeah there are some um especially through like the full employment council um there are different um job training programs and there are more and more um, companies and trades, especially now, obviously, with the continued labor shortage that uh, more and more of those, especially um, different trades, are looking at um, really ramping up more of like kind of the apprenticeship, like internship kind of, um, you know, bringing people in and really like teaching them the skills on the job. Right. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah so I, th I think we're going to continue to see more of that. Um you know, and, you know, it'll help out both sides, right, um, of things. So, yeah, for sure. Awesome. What's your biggest challenge? Our biggest challenge is unrestricted dollars. Um, okay. Yeah. I was going to say funding. I was yeah. going to help you out there. I know. Money. It comes down to money. Um, you know, unfortunately, this work is expensive. It's emergency work. So it's, you got to think about it like an emergency room, right? I mean, it costs like 10 times as much to go to the emergency room as it does to go to the doctor or even to urgent care. Um, and so doing this from this aspect is, is much more costly. So um, definitely that prevention side is key because the more people we can prevent, we can also uh, save a ton of money, you know, um, there. So yeah, it's just those unrestricted dollars for a lot of our programs um, and the staff supporting people. We get funded through a lot of different grants and foundations and things like that. Um, but the operation of like our building, you know, the mortgage and the utilities and the lights and all that fun stuff, like <laughs> it's we have to have it. It's important. We, yeah. we can't do the work without it. Um, so just those unrestricted dollars that help cover the cost of um of what that looks like. And of course, with the increasing need, you know, um, of people that we can't meet the entire need, um, you know, every single day. Um, so would, uh, challenge. more money, um, would that help you hire more people? Cause I I'm always over under the mindset of, you know, you can pour all the money you want into something, but it's people change people's lives. Right. Um, uh, that's at the end of the day, that's kind of my viewpoint on it is it's people that change people's lives. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like your organization is doing a fantastic job with that. Yeah. And the smaller we can keep those caseloads, right. Of those case managers that we've talked about, the more um, impact and the more quickly they can have with people. Um, and so when we get too many people on their caseload, it starts to slow down the process of how quickly then we're able to really, work with people and get them out. And, you know, so it definitely, it definitely plays a part. I mentioned Hillcrest earlier because, uh, I've had some experience with them helping volunteering. So I thought that was really pretty cool program that they have. Mm -hmm. Um, our church, uh, um, sponsored, uh, uh, an apartment. Um, mm -hmm. another thing about Kansas city. So, um, I was at the Salvation Army, um, annual, luncheon five six years ago maybe gosh i'm getting old um <laughs> i'm trying to remember might have been laura bush 
um, that was the keynote speaker. Um, but uh, what they were saying is um, Kansas City is a very um, charitable community. Um, you know, we're not as large as, you know, New York and, and other cities, but I think if I remember correctly, like per capita, um, we're one of the most generous cities in the country. Um, we've got some very prominent families that do a lot of charitable giving. Um, am I making any sense with that? Does that sound about right? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, Kansas City is a very generous city. Um, I mean, we have some really great relationships with some of those different um, families and foundations and folks across the city. And um, they pour a lot of money um, into a lot of different things in this community. And I think as a city, we should feel very fortunate about that. I think, you know, one of the things that we've been seeing particularly, and I think some of the some funders are even starting to have those questions like, what's the real impact of our dollars? How how can we make it go further, right? How do we have the greatest impact? Um, and I think that, you know, throughout this pandemic, I think that's one of the things that we've seen too is like, what if we weren't just band-aiding all these people every day? And what if we were actually putting this money into housing people, right? So, um, there are over like a hundred, almost a hundred agencies in Kansas City that are doing something around homelessness, providing something to people experiencing homelessness. That's a crazy amount of agencies um, providing services to um, to people, and so uh, there is a lot of duplication in that. So I think these are mm-hmm. the conversations that, as a community, we have to start having some tough conversations with one another around the duplication of things um, and how do we better use those dollars? Um, Obviously we don't want people's needs not to be met. Right. Um, But that's not the goal. Um, But, you know, um, we we don't need someone, you know, um, three people duplicating the exact same service three times in the same day. Right. That's not a good use of time or money. Um, and that could have been spent, um, you know, in, in a better way. So I think ahead there, um, you know, I think for nonprofits, I think this, um, 2022 is going to be a time that I think everyone's going to be really trying to figure out what is it we really need to be doing and how do we do that? And I hope that that continues across the community and, hopefully across some of uh, the agencies, those of us that are doing similar work, we can have very honest conversations with one another. I think, you know, we're all always fighting for the same dollars. Um, and so, you know, there are even some funders that are saying, maybe we need to rethink how we do this, right? Because it doesn't even make sense that we're, you guys are fighting for the same dollars. Like, <laughs> We're on the same team. <laughs> right. So. so, you know, there's a lot of good questions um, coming up. Um, and so I hope that it leads to a lot of good conversations. So I'm hopeful that you know, in 2022, we can just all continue to do um, even better work and have greater impact for people. So do you see potentially some consolidation there? Or what, is it, what does that look like? 
I I do think that potentially in 2022 there you may see some consolidation of nonprofits. I think you may see some nonprofits dissolve. Um, I think you may see some um, really shrink down um, and maybe not do you know as much as what they've been doing or really figure out what it is that they what's the one thing they do the best, um, you know, um, what are we really good at, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we, we've even had those conversations over the years of around like the mental health and substance use piece. It's like, well, maybe we should contract this out, right. With someone who that's what they do. Right. Uh, we do housing. <laughs> um, we do it all because they are social workers and social workers do everything, but yeah. Um, you know, but it's the same kind of conversation. Um, it's, you know, like it's okay, you know, um, and together, you know, we're all better. Um, and we can all, we can all do better if we are kind of coming together to do it. So, yeah. So I, I think it'll be interesting to kind of see where things take us. I think, uh, people are just looking for hope. Yeah. And I think you're, you you guys are providing that. Um, and so uh, I say, you know, if if anybody listening to this wants to help provide some hope, um, definitely check out Restart. Um, and I guess, Stephanie, tell us how, how people can help. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can definitely um, check out our website at restartinc.org. Um, so you can learn more about all the different programs that we talked about. You can um, give money online. Um, we have an Amazon wish list as well that we always keep updated of items that we always need. Um, so all those Amazon lovers out there, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you can definitely volunteer with us. All of our volunteer opportunities are also on our website. Um, it takes a lot of hands aside from just the 80 people that we employ. Um, we usually have about 1200 volunteers every year that help us in a lot of different ways. Um, and so, um, it takes a lot of different hands to really make the impact that we need to make. So, um, I encourage people to, yeah, get involved. Volunteering is a great way to start, um, you know, to just kind of like learn more about the organization um, meet some of the folks that we serve. And, um, you know, many of them are very open and you're going to hear some of those stories, you know, and you're going to be able to see for yourself what I've kind of talked about, um, tonight. So, which is way more impactful than me talking about it. So, yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on and and sharing this with us. Um, where can people find you? LinkedIn, uh, yes. if you want to share, yes. share anything like that or, of course, uh, we're, we're, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm guessing restarts on, uh, yeah. Facebook. So yes, restart is on all the social media channels as well. So you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. Um, so you can find me on LinkedIn for sure. Um, yeah. Oh, it's the only thing I'm, I'm not on the book of face or the the Twitter or anything like that. So, um, yeah, well, very cool. Well, Hey, I appreciate you sharing your time with us. And, uh, uh, remember if anybody is looking to, uh, little bonus there of giving less money to the government and giving it to a good organization, um, getting that, uh, $600, uh, deduction, even if you're taking the standard deduction, uh, this year, um, by, uh, donating to a, uh, 
501c3 charitable organization. Um, awesome. Well, hey, you have a great rest of the evening and uh, have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and uh, hope to see you soon. Yeah, thanks. You too. All right. Tell Audrey I said hi. Will do. Will do. <laughs> All right. Have a great holiday. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Now you can find more information about our guest, Stephanie Boyer, in the show notes. If you'd like more information about me or Hilltop Financial Planning, you can visit hilltopfp.com. For links and resources mentioned in the podcast, be sure to check out the show notes. Also, be sure to hit the subscribe button, or I guess now on Apple it's follow. Uh, We don't charge, so I guess uh, some say the advice is worth what you pay for it. Um, Not advice. Uh, (laughs) So, uh, but uh, yeah, subscribe, follow, so you get all the new episodes when they drop. And if you could do me a favor and leave the podcast a review, that would be appreciated. Helps the podcast, uh, so I'm told, uh, so we can vault up the personal finance charts. Um, Remember, five stars is the appropriate number of stars. And you can find personal finance from the Hilltop where podcasts are found, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts. I think we're on Amazon, um, the website. Yeah. Um, Yeah, anyways. At Hilltop, we continue to bring on new clients, so if you or someone you know are interested in discussing how we can help you find financial freedom, go to our website and click on Schedule a Call in the upper right-hand corner. We offer a free 30-minute introductory call, no sales pitch, just a conversation about you, what you're looking for, and how I can help. I say we and our, um, it's me (laughs) Uh, at this point, so... Anywho, uh, you know, beginning of the year, uh, finishing up the year, beginning of the new year is a great time to reassess your financial priorities and see, um, put together a plan uh, for the upcoming year and uh, make sure you're on track to achieve those goals that you're setting, whether it's retirement, um, you know, buying a new house, having a family, um, all those sorts of things. Uh, Life continually evolves and changes. and so uh, we're here to help. Lastly, the dreadful or scary disclaimer that I was advised by my clients to read, and that is everything on this podcast is of my opinion or my guest opinion and is not meant to be taken as investment advice because I am not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as a fiduciary. This podcast is for educational purposes only. Hilltop Financial Planning, LLC, is a state-registered investment advisor in the state of Missouri that serves clients nationwide while exempt from registration. That was my uh, uh, little bit of Ted Lasso there. Great show. Yeah. Uh, another episode of Personal Finance from the Hilltop in the books. Signing off from the Hilltop, I'm Kyle Hill. <laughs>